Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at RightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10. Nine, eight, seven. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Here in the studio again. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, except I don't like your... Beard you don't like the all. beard? Well, no. You know, uh, Sarah thinks it's okay. Holland, my youngest daughter, hates it, you know, and I'm like, you know what? What does Lauren say? Lauren ha- really hadn't seen me with it yet, so. Uh, yeah. Well, if if you were not as handsome as you are. Oh, thank you. Then I would say. Cover it up. Cover yeah, it up. Cover it up. But, you know, <laughs> you, you just. You're you know, I, too I, handsome I, to I do it every face once up. in a while. So, well, you know. Well, not that I get a vote, but my vote is no. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's cold. It keeps the face warm a little more. So, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it around a little You know, while. a mask does too. Really? Even now, during masking, I did figure out that it does keep your face warm oh, outside whenever I go. walk in the morning. Another business opportunity after COVID. There you, know? you go. Mask for your face. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got another action-packed podcast today. We're going to be talking about thrilling topics. I think our listenership is just going to be so enthralled with our topic today, Sharon. Well, actually, we have received quite a few requests. I know. I about know. this. Well, it's interesting. I thought you were being facetious. I kind of was. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's it's never fun to talk about tax code. But this is something that directly impacted mm-hmm. every anesthesia provider out there, right? It absolutely did. CRNAs, anesthesiologists, both. And, you know, as we talk about this, and, and what we're talking about is the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act, or aka known as TEFRA. TEFRA. And uh, it's funny, we got Sandy Ouellette with us and Nancy Marie, and they're going to be expounding upon this in our historical series today. But I was telling Sandy, I said, not only did it affect you guys, 
it also affected, you know, our industry, the financial industry. I mean, it was far-reaching legislation. It changed the way banks account for carried interest, for example. It changed the way that life insurance policies worked, whereas people were socking a lot of money away in life insurance. And TEFRA changed the definition of life insurance to kind of alternate, you know, what could be done there. And in fact, it changed the insurance industry forever. So, and those are just a couple of examples, but it had far reaching ramifications. Wow, we thought it was just all about I us. I thought it was all us. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you know, um, what? Uh, so the 80s brought us disco and Tefra. And Tefra. So, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But that was in 1982, um, the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act. And it was really enacted, I think at the time, by Reagan, if I remember right. Um, And it was kind of a budget deficit uh, reasoning behind it. Um, But it also had to do with payment for anesthesiologist services. Um, And Sandy, you're going to tell us more why this Health Care Financing Administration and now the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And, you know, why was TEFRA implemented, Sandy? Okay. Um Okay. Yeah, TEFRA, um, as we said, was enacted in 1982. You uh, remember, I believe it was, what, 1965 that Medicare was enacted? Mm -hmm. And it was like a sleeping giant. You know, we sent a bill, the federal government paid it, everybody was happy. Why wouldn't you be happy? (laughs) You know, but then in the early 80s, the government recognized that the escalated Medicare costs was something that they could not continue to um, to keep up with. And that was especially true for hospital-based services, which included anesthesiology, pathology, and radiology. Now, this started in 1982, but I don't want to forget to make the point. It went until the final rules were really agreed upon in 1998. That was a 16-year span. Mm. Our members need to understand that. I live with it. The whole time I was on the board, and I was president in 1989, Nancy lived with it the whole time she was on the board and was president because she was president in 1996-97. So the members need to understand when there is something that really impacts us, that has a precedent, it's not something that's here one day and gone the other. You have got to pay attention and and go with it. I mean, for example, to compare it, direct reimbursement, we had that done in seven years four years of legislation and three years of, uh, of regulation. But this was 16 years, and um, so that's important. So why did TEFRA impact anesthesia services? There, there was a concern and a need to ensure that anesthesiologists showed that they provided certain services as part of an anesthetic to qualify for payment of medical direction of the CRNA. I guess... It, that's much easier to say than fraud. There was there was a lot of fraud out there then, and um, and so they wanted to have something that if you say you did this, you'll get paid. If you did not do this, you would not get paid. The thing that needs to be emphasized: it was never ever an anesthesia standard. It was never ever a quality of care issue. It was a reimbursement issue, and a reimbursement issue for anesthesiologists. It really didn't affect us and in terms of reimbursement. And that's why it's so hard hmm. uh, to get it changed, because the federal government and others are very reticent 
for us to go in and talk about someone else's reimbursement oh. and want to do anything about it. Back to your statement about a quality of care issue, anything. They have flipped that paradigm and made oh, Tefra a quality of care Absol- issue, right? Absolutely. No, they- their qu- it was their quality of care standard it was. before Tefra. <clears throat> yes. They convinced HICFA to put it in as the seven conditions. Oh. It was their quality of care, uh, like Nancy said. For and, the anesthesia care team, yes. And the other thing is, while HICFA, and Nancy will probably mention this, uh, issued a public statement at our request that it had nothing to do with quality of care or standards, they cleverly sold it as a quality of care uh, issue to uh, promote the ACT model, the mm-hmm. anesthesia mm-hmm. care team model. Now, the thing to remember before TEFRA, now think about this, anesthesiologists could bill for their services of medical direction of hospital-based CRNAs without demonstrating they provided specific services to qualify for payment. In addition, there was no limit on how many cases they could be doing at one time. If you were at a large hospital, you know, because it was Part B Medicare, if you were at a large hospital... You could just put in your bill for more than four at a time. There was there was no limit. Okay, wow. so let's talk wow. about the golden, olden years and how the practice looked whenever you guys first went in. We were talk, talking about it a little bit before we hit the record button about how there were billing and they weren't in the hospital. They weren't in the state. They Tell us some of these stories. Well, when I was came to anesthesia school and for <clears throat> until the TEFRA, we that, would go. Uh, Nancy, would, that before you go on, you graduated in seventy four, did you? Mm-hmm. So our our people will know about what okay. time it was. Yeah. Um, we would go see our patient, and that didn't mean that the anesthesiologist didn't go see the patient, or or but we would go and visit our patient, and we would re- go and talk with the anesthesiologist in the morning and tell them the history of our patient, and what our plans were. And, you know, they could make, they sometimes would make suggestions or they might approve the plan or, but uh, unless it was a really, really uh, difficult intubation or extremely sick patient, we would go and do our job. I mean, they weren't there necessarily for intubation or extubation, but they were there in the operating room and we could certainly get it call them if we needed them and they would come but there were no nothing really that they had to do and call was different too i'm speaking from where i went to school Mm -hmm. okay they didn't have to be in-house and we would get an emergency in we would call them tell them after we'd (coughs) seen the patient and talk to them about it and if it were something like a bring back heart or um neuro a bad neuro case a really bad case they would come in but if it wasn't you know they weren't home we told them what we were going to do and we went ahead and did it and that was how we practiced and it was it was it wasn't that anybody thought anybody was better than anybody else it was really a good working relationship there weren't a lot of anesthesiologists i was sitting here trying to think how many anesthesiologists, who were the anesthesiologists when I was in anesthesia school? And there was one, two, maybe only three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of course they they became more later on as not not just because of Tefra but because of moving into a newer and bigger operating room you know that kind of thing but then you begin to see them having to have a lot more anesthesiologists to meet the uh, one to four right um ratio yeah well i graduated in 1969 so uh, a little bit before nancy and um when i came to school there in 67 uh, to 69 there were no anesthesiologists at this medical center um, there was one that was a resident, and all the others had left right wow. before uh, he started his residency. So he completed his residency. He was self-taught, and he was an excellent anesthesiologist and stayed uh, uh, on until his retirement. Dr. Turner. Yes. But there were no— Who was uh, married to a CRN. That's right. But there were, no, um, there were no anesthesiologists. And then Dr. Irving came as chair of our department, and— he was so happy because uh, that, uh, well, Dr. Turner was happy because now there was two of them. Well, Dr. Irvin thought it was terrible that there wasn't 10 of them or more, and so the department began to build after that. But having said that, you know, as Nancy said, we were often with students, and it was CRNA, and a student would would do the case, and and sometimes we talked to the anesthesiologist, sometimes we didn't. There wasn't but one to talk to, or two, or, you know, whatever. So it was a bit different. And one of the things that TEFRA has done that has hurt us the most, and I don't want to jump too much ahead because we'll talk about that, but it has left to the impression where most students are educated uh, that we can't practice like that anymore. You know, and we have some of our members that talk about total independent practice from day out of school. It's not possible in terms of the way we have to educate. All that comes with experience and um and uh, more confidence after they get out. You know what? I never thought about that until just this moment it because was, of the way we have to educate our students. It is one of the biggest things with TEFRA for us that oh, hurt, my goodness. hurt a lot. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. That's this why, is a dumb moment for me. <laughs> That's why I never, years, like. I, but I've never just really right. thought about it, but you know, we've always had this discussion that you are putting practitioners out and, you know, they they can't be fully independent. Mm-hmm. And people have complained about that because we're giving them a baseline uh, coming out of their education. But how are you going to educate them to be independent practitioners when you can't even practice like that whenever you're a student? Well, right. there's always some of our hospitals where the- our students can rotate where it's a CRNA only, but those are few in number. We couldn't educate 2,200 that are graduating a year in these small hospitals, nor would we want to, because we want to be where they do the big cases and uh, a lot of different different right. things, so right. to have the variety. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that our shortage of programs did after reimbursement where so many programs closed and we had to expand by mostly expanding clinical sites, it gave us everything because we have greater variety of cases Mm -hmm. and we have greater security for our programs. But getting back to um, about why it was implemented when it was or in, in 1982, some physicians were just not complying with the Medicare rule. Now, the rule said that in their manual it said they had to be close by and available to provide immediate personal assistance and direction. 
and it stated that availability by telephone did not qualify for the mandate. Hmm. And some people just weren't paying a lot of attention to that, the best I could <laughs> <that> tell. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so by 1983, HICFA, and remember that was the Healthcare Finance mm-hmm. Administration, which is now CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, published the final rules implementing uh, TEFRA relative to payment for anesthesiologists. And in that, they had um, a ratio because prior to that, anesthesiologists had no ratio. They could bill for, if you had 20 rooms, 20 rooms. That's just the way it was. That was the good old days. That was, was probably say, the golden yeah. years in <laughs> anesthesiology. <laughs> so, but anyway, it was interesting how those ratios came about. And I don't know if Nancy wants to mention anything more about it. But um, the ASA lobbied for a, a, a two-to-one ratio, two CRNAs for one anesthesiologist. ANA said we didn't believe that there should be ratios, but there should, if there were ratios, it should be a four-to-one. Now, wait a minute, Sandy. Why, why would they want a two-to-one ratio when they can't be away from the hospital, they can't be available by phone call? That means they've got to be in the room. I mean, didn't that cut into their pocketbooks at that point? Well, you would think, but you've got to look at several things one is uh who runs the asa i mean really john guard used to call it the town and gown syndrome a lot of academicians uh and what do they want they're there for big residency programs and if you have these residency programs you got to have somewhere to put them right but you're right jeremy it didn't make a lot of sense financially however in in putting some of this material together I came across the fact that private payers at that time were really uh, only reimbursing anesthesiologists one to two concurrent cases. Hmm. Privates were doing that already. Okay. So okay. I used to think that they wanted the one to two as a job security act right. down the road. Which I could see that. Uh, yeah. But that may have played a part in it too. Gotcha. But as it came, came out, um, they decided on the one to four, four to one, however you want to say it, for uh, concurrent cases with one anesthesiologist. That was uh, what was decided on. So interesting, when they were they were really coming across with this one to two or one to four, I know that there was a very prominent anesthesiologist in North Carolina, I'm not gonna mention the name, Pat Fleming was president of ANA or had just been president of ANA at that time. And that person didn't want a one to two either. And uh, so, um, so that we we did get some help, I imagine, uh, in some ways with that. So these were some of the reasons um, that this came about. In addition to the ratios, the TEFRA law also contains specific language regarding conditions of payment, which became known as the seven conditions of payment. And it was a physician reimbursement uh document or mandate it it did not have anything to do with crnas although it impacted us Mm -hmm. without a doubt 
As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. All right, so Nancy, you know, we always hear the terms medical supervision and medical direction under Part B Medicare, and it can get a little confusing. So why don't you tell us the difference between those two things? Well, I think it becomes confusing because there is supervision also mentioned of CRNAs in Part A. And that is the supervision that governors can opt out of. And that has to do with hospital payment. It does not have anything to do with reimbursement of providers. And But there is a medical supervision mentioned in Part B. And what happens is if, if you are... Or you under if you're practicing medical supervision and not medical direction, you can supervise up to six CRNAs or anesthesia assistants. And I will just interject here that sort of at the tail end of all of this, the anesthesiologist slipped AAs in oh. uh, into this with CRNAs that these seven conditions would also be the way they had to practice interesting with with one exception anesthesia assistants have to work with an anesthesiologist and that came from tefra i mean aas were around but they put that in as an insurance policy it sounds like well they put it in i'm sure to clarify that how they they could get how they could get paid for working with anesthesia assistants right gotcha and as an aside in our direct reimbursement legislation that we lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and fought for for four years. In the 11th hour, everywhere it said CRNA slash AA. So they sort of slipped in the back door there, too. Huh. Interesting. Well, I think a lot of the confusion, too, between supervision and medical direction comes in because whenever I say I'm supervising you, that is a term that is, I don't know, I think it raises the hairs on your neck just a little bit more but it's actually opposite if you are being medically directed that's a more uh, intensive term than supervision but in our minds we cross those we did a we did a podcast on that didn't we Uh, yeah we did and it's still i think people just don't understand they may want to go back and listen to that that's That's a good point yeah Yeah. already forgotten we had done that Yeah. yeah but again medical supervision under part b of uh, uh, Medicare reimbursement, the anesthesiologists can work with a maximum of six CRNAs or anesthesia assistants. 
they do not have to perform all of the seven conditions of TEFRA. And what they have, but and the way they get reimbursed is that the anesthesiologist, can, if he's if he's billing medical supervision, can get three billing units for each case, oh. and he can get a fourth billing unit if he is present for induction. He or she is present for induction. The CRNA still gets is paid according to the way they're usually paid because these don't apply to them now with medical direction they have to abide by all seven conditions okay they can't just pick and choose the ones they want to abide by they have to abide by all seven and um and then there are modifiers if there's medical supervision then the crna bills with a qx modifier and the anesthesiologist deals with an AD billing modifier. So they're totally different things, but they wouldn't really impact our part of the reimbursement, but it would lower his reimbursement, hmm. or it could lower his reimbursement. And, you know, I want to go back to what you, Sandy, was talking about, about uh, the TEFRA impacting our ability to to teach our students how to be more independent. The entire time I was on the board, this TEFRA was my my bugaboo. And every year when we developed our government relations agenda, it was always, I always wanted TEFRA first, but it always won out that supervision under Part A was first and TEFRA was second. And so most of everything that was done during my years on the board, dealt with supervision under Part A. And again, a lot of that had to do with the fact that, as Sandy said, it's very difficult to make changes in how some other professional gets paid. Right. But right. I hate, I've hated this TEFRA. Oh, I've heard you talk and, about um, it for 30 years. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it really interferes with us being able like, for example, when I graduated from anesthesia school, I went to work for two GPs. Mm-hmm. They did their cases. I did my cases. The CRNAs that worked there did their cases. I didn't even discuss my cases with the GPs. I'm not sure <laughs> they could have helped me. One of them used to give Cyclo and Ether together. Does that cause you to blow up? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> good question. I wouldn't have relieved him on a dare. Oh my goodness! So, wow. Um, well, you know, I mean, just listening to this, as as always, this it's so convoluted, and you know, it's almost like anything the government does. You know, you got to have a QX modifier, an AD modifier, a QZ modifier. I hear everybody talk about QZ. I've, I've seen stuff on that, but. I mean, this really complicated a lot of things, this this act. And, you know, Sandy, what what was ANA's take on this and concerns about TEFRA? Well, you know, the original rules, let me just mention those. I don't think we did. Mm-mm. The seven conditions of payment. One, perform a pre-anesthetic examination and evaluation. Two, prescribe the anesthetic plan. Three, personally participates in the most demanding procedures in the anesthesia plan, including induction and emergence. Four, ensures that any procedure in the anesthesia plan that he or she does not perform or perform by a qualified individual as defined in the program operating instructions. 
monitors the course of anesthesia at frequent intervals, remains physically present and available for immediate diagnosis and treatment of emergencies, and provides the indicated post-operative care. So they were the original uh, seven um, conditions of, uh, of payment under TEFRA. Hey, Sandy, just real quick, who is a qualified individual? CRNAs and AAs. Oh, so you, that, that you, they say in there that you're qualified individuals. So, and I'm just trying to get a, an idea here. I, I hear that brain. Yeah, I mean, you know, they have to be present for induction and emergence, right? And I don't That's know what it said. I don't know how many times I know that they're not, and I'm never in the operating room, but I hear this. So, if the qualified individual is in the room, that qualifies, right? In the first ones. The original rules, it only said qualified individuals at point four. Nancy's going to talk about proposed rules that okay. later came out, and they had qualified individuals showing up in more than one place. Oh, Did they okay. not, Nancy? Okay. But then that didn't go too well with a lot of people, and so they went back basically to the original rules. Huh. But you're absolutely right, uh, Jeremy, and that's what gets into concerns that ANA had about TEFRA. Yeah. Even with the clarification of HICFA, these conditions of payment were inappropriately interpreted as quality of care standards. As Nancy said, and we can't say it enough, they were the ACT quality of care standards for the ASA. Yeah, I mean, that's what they were. Right. Okay. It created a disruption in the overall delivery and flow of services in the OR, causing needless and costly delays, which you would be interested in, Mm -hmm. you know, as a consumer of our services and as a money man. You understand it. If you've got to be there for induction and emergence, and you're looking at four different rooms, how about if three of them are being induced at the same time? Right. Or the patient, you know. So, or you got to stagger, and then you make the surgeons mad, and then the ORs are running behind. That's right. I mean, that's and all money. Turnover. Lord yeah. knows turnover time. But they can't meet that 90% of the time. Right. In one study that was done about that time, it was a, it was one well, only one hospital, Los Angeles County Hospital. But both anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists agreed that 70% of cases did not need medical direction. Now, I don't know where they got the 70%. I would think it would be higher you know, mm-hmm. depending on the type of facility that you work. It mm-hmm. could be 90% in some hospitals or more, and it could be 70 in, you know, some places doing a lot of transplants and, you know, a lot of big stuff like that. Um, we really can't, you know, it was really a cost reduction thing that we were concerned about. And we never really wanted ratios, but we said four to one would be best if there had to be ratios. And Nancy's going to tell you, I believe, that one of the things that ANA fought for and did get is your conditions of payment. So you sign what you did in this case. Right. We fought for that, and they did listen to us there because we didn't want that CRNA be put in a position that she had to sign for something she didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. Like this person was president and supervising, maybe the person wasn't there at all. And that puts them as a co-conspirator, right? Mm-hmm. Would it not? It's yeah. illegal. Yeah. And so they have to sign for it. They have to say they did it. But that was our, our, our major concerns. But my major concern is an educator. It changed the way we educate students for over the last three to four decades. 
in a negative way. Wow. So, Nancy, what were the concerns that arose about TEFRA between 93 and 99? And you lived this, as you said. So give us the inside scoop. Well, AANA believed changes in health care and health care reimbursement favored less restrictive conditions, which allowed more flexibility in allocation of anesthesia personnel and more expedient services to consumers. The other thing was that there were a lot of studies that were coming out at that time that supported the opposite of the anesthesiologist's promotion of medical director medical direction of CRNAs providing a higher quality of care. Um, and there were two reports. One was in 1992 and one was in 1997 where they reported that there was really no difference in the quality of care within the anesthesia care team when compared to anesthesiologists alone and CRNAs alone. So in 1998, the AANA shifted its focus from legislative strategies, which weren't working, for revision of TEFRA, to doing it through regulatory change. And so surgical cases were increasing. Managed care companies were putting an emphasis on increased OR efficiency. And because the TEFRA conditions were not tied to quality of care, the AANA, as well as other organizations, were trying to use legislative and regulatory change, and we were trying to use regulatory change as a way to advocate for uh, um, the public and changing these conditions of payment. Now, in 1997, there was a meeting between AANA, ASA, and it was still HICFA at that time. It's now CMS, over proposals to changing or modifying these seven conditions of payment. And I was one of the ones who was a part of that meeting. Um, The ones who represented um, AANA were Dr. Scott Foster, John Gard, Uh, Dave Hebert, who was our lobbyist at the time, and myself. And the ones who were there for ASA was the current president, the current uh, first vice president, and their lobbyist. And we were going to look at revisions. Now, one of the things that was going on at that time was uh, the Minnesota fraud case. Mm -hmm. And so ASA was beginning to recognize that maybe some of these seven conditions needed to be modified because certainly the Minnesota case highlighted that there was fraud and it could become more common for these suits to be filed. Because the fraud was very common. Yeah. (laughs) So um, what happened was... ASA came in with the head of HICFA, and we were in there already, and their lobbyists passed out what they wanted the seven conditions to be revised to say. And those were very open, and um, I'll, I'll read, some, read them for you. But what they proposed was medical, medically directed anesthesia services. For each patient, the physician performs a pre-anesthetic examination and evaluation or reviews one performed by another qualified individual per- permitted by the state to administer anesthetics. 
participate in the development of the anesthesia plan and give final approval of the proposed plan. Personally participate in the most demanding procedures of the anesthesia plan. Ensure that any aspect of the anesthesia plan not performed by the anesthesiologist is performed by a qualified individual as specifically specified in operating instructions. Monitor the course of anesthesia at intervals uh, medically indi indicated by the nature of the procedure and the patient's condition. Remain physically present and available for immediate diagnosis and treatment of emergencies and provide indicated post-anesthesia care or ensures that it is done by a qualified individual as prescribed in paragraph blah 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 of this section. So you can see this really opened up things. So that For they, delegation. They, for delegation mm -hmm. rather than having to be present at everything. And it would have it would have helped us from an educational standpoint as well as uh, more efficient ORs, uh, easier, you know, faster inductions, I mean, faster getting then patients to sleep and then having to wait. And wake, waiting to wake them up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, we uh, agreed to these. Both of you, the ASA there. ASA, and you. Well, they brought them in. Yeah. So I they mean, were they happy were, with they them. They were what they wanted. Yeah. And so we did do some arguing over the pre-anesthetic assessment, but um, we finally agreed. And this was published in the congressional record that AANA and ASA both agreed. Well, Nancy, what did AANA want more in the pre-anesthetic assessment? You said you argued about that. We argued remember? about that because, uh, and I see here that this is, has been modified, but originally it was they would do the pre-anesthetic assessment. Uh -huh. Okay. And um, and that has its implications too because it becomes very easy to hide that there's a CRNA <laughs> right. present in and involved in the anesthetic, particularly after they, they get the get verse a, set. After <laughs> they get the verse set, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> they we were pretty agreed. strong on that, not giving that up. Was yes, that correct? Yes. They were very strong on not giving that up. You know, we've always talked about what does the immediately available look like and you know they say it can't be defined by time nor space and I pulled it up and this is from the 2013 ASA relative value guide they introduced a new definition <laughs> for uh, and it and it does say Differences in the design and size of various facilities and demands of the particular surgical procedures make it impossible to define a spe specific <laughs> time or distance for physical proximity. Wow. Now, how's that for a wow. definition? Do you, you, you know isn't some it, attorney wrote that? Isn't it funny how <laughs> when it doesn't fit what you want, you just change the definition? <laughs> that I mean, is now we're not calling the shots vaccines anymore. We're calling them something else. And they're trying to redefine what the word treason means. Yes. You know, the federal government. You know, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. Ah, oh, well... There's a skill set there. <laughs> so anyway, um, it came to the attention of AANA in 1998, and this was published in Anesthesia Answer Book, Action Alert, that ASA had had second thoughts upon agreeing upon the revisions. 
Um, so they proposed them. Yes. And then had second thoughts. A and A agreed, and then they, well, then they go, yeah. "Oh well, we must have well, messed up if the AANA is yeah. okay." Why do you think they had second thoughts? Because the ASA meeting was held, <laughs> oh. and um, my understanding, although I can't prove this, is that there was a real uproar over these with their members um, changes. Uh-huh. And so, okay, um, ASA backed out. Hmm. Um, I think they also said they didn't agree with them, but I can't prove that. I know they didn't tell them that they were their revisions. So anyway, the response by HICFA to the concerns of the ASA and state anesthesiologist societies was to to retain the original seven conditions of 1983. Now, then HICFA decided that the medically directing physicians must be present at induction emergence for general anesthesia, but only if applicable for other types of anesthesia, such as regional, also monitored anesthesia care was included in that. The other thing was that the CMS, because it had changed its name, planned to study the medical direction issue further and maybe propose changes in the future, and I don't know that that study has ever taken place. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I think it's important for everybody uh, in anesthesia to know what the TEFRA currently is because of the possibility of fraud, and you don't want to be agreeing to something that you probably don't know that you're agreeing to if you don't know them. The current rules... um, say that for each patient, the physician performs a pre-anesthetic examination and evaluation. Now, there are some small changes to these rules that are in place now, although HICFA said it was going to revert back to the original ones of 1983. Um, Prescribe the anesthesia plan. Personally participate in the most demanding aspects of the anesthesia plan, including, if applicable, induction and emergence. Ensure that any procedure in the anesthesia plan that he or she does not perform are performed by a qualified individual as defined in operating instructions. Monitor the course of anesthesia administration at frequent intervals and remain physically present and available for immediate diagnosis and treatment of emergencies and provide indicated post-anesthesia care. Now, medical documentation. The physician alone inclusively documents in the patient's medical record that the conditions set forth in paragraph A1 of this section have been satisfied, specifically documenting that he or she performs the pre-anesthetic exam and evaluation provided the indicated and provided the indicated post-anesthesia care and was present during the most demanding procedures, including induction and emergence when applicable, which gives you a little leeway there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the the documentation piece was requested by AANA and that was to keep keep the CRNA kind of out of trouble. Uh, so that they wouldn't be asked to put their initials there or sign the chart or that kind of thing. And so ANA continues to monitor the impact of the TEFRA rules on operating room efficiency, patient care, and CRNA practice. 
Now, making advantage changes in the conditions, as I've said before, and as Sandy has said, is difficult. And again, the reason is because these seven conditions don't impact our payment at all. They're the payment of another provider. They just impact so our life. It yeah. impacts <laughs> our life, but it does not impact our, um, our, payment, to get paid. our payment to get paid. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, Sandy, tell us a little bit about some of the revisions that have come under TEFRA. I don't think there's been any since yeah. 1998. Have they changed at all, Nancy, since 18, 19... Did you just say 1898? <laughs> no, 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 I said 1998. Oh, God. I, oh, God. Could you imagine if we'd live with it all that long? Yeah, 1998. <laughs> Have there been any changes? Those are the final ones that we still are living with. Is that not correct, Nancy? Well, if you look at all the changes that AANA was influential in, the adoption of the 1 to 4 rather than the 1 to 2 was certainly something that the AANA highly influenced. Uh, the published statement by HICVA that the seven conditions are not considered quality-related standards, that was done by AANA. The requirement that physicians must do their own documentation of their involvement with the seven conditions came from AANA. And one that we haven't talked about, which happened the fir- my first year on the board, was adoption of the 50-50 split in payment by CRNAs and anesthesiologists for a case if the ratio of medical direction does not exceed one to four. Now, let me explain that. Up until that time, the anesthesia care team was getting 120% for a case. I remember that. And so uh, AANA lobbied to make everything 50-50 when there was any involvement of a CRNA and an anesthesiologist who both were going to be billing or be billed for. Hmm. Interesting. The other thing that was uh, in, that was very influential was the adoption of the 50 split and payment between anesthesiologists and CRNAs when medical direction is one-to-one. Now, when medical direction before this, a statement that I just said, when medical direction was one-to-one, the anesthes- if you built one-to-one, the anesthesiologist, in order to get 100% of the case, which they had to be in the room all the time. Mm. But one of the things that was going on with the fraud case in Minnesota was they were billing one-to-one. The hospital wasn't getting any money for Medicare cases because CRNAs were employed by the hospital, and they weren't in the room all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so um, now, regardless, if it's one-to-one, the CRNA is going to get 50% of the payment, and the anesthesiologist is going to get 50% of the payment, regardless of how much he stays in the room or doesn't stay in the room. That's a pretty good deal for the anesthesiologist, I would think. 
<laughs> you know, I was thinking about something as, as we were kind of going through this, and it goes back to the educational piece, not really to, to deal with Tefra, but Sandy, who started the school at Baptist? Was it the physicians? Yes, it was. Uh, Dr. Roscoe Wall okay. was one of the first, if not the first, anesthesiologist in the state of North Carolina, and he found out he couldn't keep up with the load, so he started school in 1942. Okay. And he remained director until sometimes in the 50s. I'd have to go back in the 1950s. And then for the first time, a CRNA became director of the program that he started, and that was Lillian Stansfield-Smith. Okay. All right. And, and Nancy, I know um, when you were at Raleigh that the physicians started that school as well, correct? Yes. And, you know, I was just thinking back to our conversation earlier about, you know, students and how they can't get the education without the anesthesiologist, the big cases and so forth. And I just inherently thought of a huge conflict of interest if they had a lot of control and exerted control over those schools. And um, I, I know that that had happened. I just wonder how much that happened throughout that time period? I don't think it happened a lot. I think there was conflict, yeah. you know, but there were very strong program directors. And, you know, going back in our history, Helen Lamb, the mother of nurse anesthesia education, knew that our demise would be when nurse anesthesia education was not totally controlled by nurse anesthetists. Right. She knew that. And I think it always has been. And one of the things that helps us so much is the standards and criteria by the Council on Accreditation. Mm. And so we can never lose sight of that as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, we do have battles from time to time, like, you know, CRNAs can't do regional here. They right. can't put an A-line in here and, you know, those types of things. But it pales in the big scheme. And I, I would not want to leave the impression that our students are not well-educated today. They are the best educated there's ever been. They've got better drugs. They've got better monitors. The CRNAs uh, really take them under their wings, not only in, in academic medical centers, but in community hospitals. They have the best of everything in mm -hmm. education. But it's hard to convince some of our members that a student can graduate one day and walk out the next as a full independent practitioner walking on water putting in their own blocks every kind of block mm -hmm. doing everything because i can tell you those people that are saying that they couldn't do it either mm -hmm. the day they walked out right because it takes uh you know you learn in that next two or three years it's like a child that learns to walk in the first four or five years their formative years they learn so much yeah. and our people learn so much in the first few years when they graduate nobody's looking over their shoulder right. if if they open themselves to that and and there's nothing that can replace experience you have to have that experience to build confidence right you know right and so so that's important yeah. well you know thinking um in the end tefra has really been on our mind forever on peggy mcfadden's mind it was so much that she named one of her horses her thoroughbred racing horses in Lexington, Kentucky, Tefra. <laughs> and I don't know if Tefra's still living. Do you know, know Tefra's not living anymore? But it was a beautiful, beautiful horse. 
That wasn't his real name. That was his barn name. That was his oh, barn okay. name. Oh, Tefra. Tefra. Yeah. And the oh. other thing I, I want to say in my closing remarks is there's a book that all of our listeners, I know the students are probably familiar with it, a Professional Study and Resource Guide for CRNAs. It was uh, edited by Scott Foster and Margaret Falk Callahan. The second edition was published in 2010. And uh, this chapter that we've just uh, talked about is chapter 14, and that was uh, authored by uh, Nancy Marie here. And so if you want to go back and look at some more notes, uh, I refer you to this book. It's a great, great resource guide in many different areas. The podcast that we did was episode 93 where okay. we talked about medical direction and supervision, okay. if okay. people want to go back and listen to that. Okay. Uh, I want to add a couple of other things that are not in this book because I'm sure they happened since this was published. But ASA has made some changes that are not in the current conditions that are in this book. And I'm not sure that I can say them all, but if you go online and look them up, you can find them. But one of them was to allow an anesthesiologist who's on call to be able to go to OB to put in an epidural uh, to check on that OB patient if necessary, Uh, also to be able to pre-op an emergency. So there have been some things that have been done to uh, the current seven conditions to open it up so that the person on call does have some latitude to take care of things that need to be taken care of relative to emergencies or OB that and pack you, know, you discharging patients yep, from yeah. well, he well can that dist- would yep. keep them from having to have two anesthesiologists on site versus right, one right mm-hmm. right but um you know they always have a resident on call at a at an academic center anyway so but in smaller hospitals you know it becomes it becomes more critical for them to be able to pre-op an emergency or to and you know i'm sure any really conscientious person would not leave if things were going really bad in an operating room you know so but um you know like i said these sandy has said my my big thing and and i'll be honest with you I, i i used to just fume when we would have a forum or something and you know the independent practice people would go to the microphone and complain about how students were being educated because quite frankly i may be wrong but i don't think there are enough clinical sites crna only clinical sites that every student that we graduate could have the opportunity to They're work not. at one um but I never got, you know, but it was just, you, you know, it used to really bug Cap me. You. Yeah, it did. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I didn't know everything when I graduated from anesthesia school, but I went out and worked with two GPs. But I've learned a lot in the years that mm-hmm. I have, have been a practicing CRNA, and everybody does. So it's like Sandy said, you know, they didn't graduate as independent as I think they think they, they did. And yeah. And I'm the same, you know. I I think that I knew more than I probably knew too. You know, it's just a human element. Yeah. It's just the way we are. Yeah. And I'm not being critical of them, but you know, I do wish that they would take into consideration that program directors may have some limitations that they don't like, 
but it's it's the way it is until we can make changes yeah there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks out there and you know i would say that the the students going through anesthesia school today are extremely bright extremely intelligent and they're trained to be confident um, and to be independent providers of anesthesia. So, you know, we see that with the new students that graduate, and I'm sure all of you do as well. So, And another thing I've learned over the years is that anesthesia is a science, but more than that, it's an art. Because mm-hmm. the way Sharon gives an anesthetic is going to be different than the way Sandy does, and Nancy is going to do it different as well. So you learn your art and you craft it along the way mm-hmm. of what works for you. Yep. All right. Sandy, Nancy, always a pleasure. You're Thank you welcome. guys it's for been being fun. here. Yeah. I think the snow's melted now. I think so. Be easier trip so. going home. Be easier home. trip going home. That's right. All right, Sharon. Well, I think it's a wrap. I think so. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us grow? The biggest way is to leave us a review, but make it positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell your friends, put it on social media, and help us grow. That's right. Until next time. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call them at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.